Portland, Oregon. Keep it going. Keep it going. Portland. All right. Aladdin Theater, Portland, Oregon. It is great to be back here in the beautiful city of Portland in the wonderful Pacific Northwest of the United States. What do you guys say? What happened? We have not we've not done this in a while. We're yeah, still yeah. a little rusty. All right, I'll uh, I'll take initiative. Um, <laughs> we're honored to be here in the world capital of men who accuse women of abuse for breaking up with them. Great to be here in Portland. We got in uh, last night. Um, went out for a meal in town in Portland. Uh, this is also the capital city of no one wants to work anymore. No one wants to work anymore. No one wants to work anymore. Uh, there's, about, there's, about, there's about four waiters working in the entire city. And, uh, and worse than that, every other place, I got to stand at least 10 feet away from or else apparently you're going to call the cops. I don't know. You know, the sign, 10 feet, no racism. That's a thing. It's adorable. Well, I mean, it's good as long as you stand outside the 10-foot radius. Yeah. It's fine in the city. Um, but no, we, were, uh, we went, to, went to dinner last night at this place, and right across the street, there was sort of uh, what I'm told is a house that's like a collective of bike messengers. Ooh. And they were all getting ready to organize like, a, a bike messenger bike race. It was extremely fucking Portland. I felt we were, we were in the right place. An and then entire, like, an entire uh, house full of pucks from the real world. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what, what's even like? Who uses a fucking bike messenger now? Like, I feel, I feel like that's only for spies. <laughs> what kind of shitty country sends their spies to Portland? <laughs> that's what you do if you're one of like the cabbage countries that isn't Russia. <laughs> We need a guy with a, with a sleeve tattoo to get these nuclear launch codes across town in less than a half an hour. Uh, no, so we were, uh, we were out there. There's like one side of the street is like, a, like a, a string of very trendy restaurants that were all just like, please, don't come here. We don't, there's not enough. We can't serve you food. And right across the street was a house full of like cool people with tattoos, hanging out, riding bicycles. And I was just thinking, like, for the Portland restaurant industry, I think it really needs to take a page from the British Navy and just start shanghaiing and gang-pressing. So, like, if you're in Portland and you have, like, cool tattoos, you just, like, get knocked out and you wake up and you're just, like, chained to an espresso machine. You're like, you're a barista now, asshole. Get used to it. If you have time enough to swerve, you have time enough to serve. (laughs) Well, like, whoever, like, loses, you know, the the, like, worst version of the Warriors that you guys have been doing since, like, 2015. (laughs) Like, whoever loses that should have to, like, work in restaurants. And, like... The Frisbee Golf Furies. Yeah. We know know that the the proud guys, they love cereal. (laughs) They could work in one of those restaurants where you pay $17 for, like, a boutique cereal. That's a very Dennis Leary joke. <laughs> oh, what do, you, what, what do you have? A fucking $35 cereal latte? <laughs> How about seriously? Some... Seriously, let's help firefighters, though. <laughs> How about some cereal-flavored cereal, okay? Yeah. How about when you went to a restaurant and you got toast and eggs? 
Now you, now you go and you get a thing of parsley and a land acknowledgement. <laughs> well, Portland, I wanted to begin tonight's show by uh, sharing with you guys um, some things I've learned about Portland. I, I, you know, we did some, some, a deep historical dive into the city of Portland, and you know, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps I'm sharing with you stuff you already knew about the city that you live in. But you know, I'm from New York, so let me teach you about history and the part of the country you live in. Let Eustace Tilly <laughs> break it down for you over here. Mr. Well, Upper West Side. I mean, like, no one's from here. The only people who are, like, from Oregon are people who, like... I'm sorry. What? What? I'm sorry. They are sawing your ass in Lumberjack Twitter after that one. <laughs> well, no, no. Well, no. Those are the only people who were born here are people who are, like, a member of a militia that prints its own money. I know New York and L.A. are the same way, but, like, yeah. Well, Portland, would you believe that the, like in the early days of Portland, when it was just a sort of like a, a fledgling city, early Portland was not unlike our listenership and this audience. <laughs> I'm reading here from a history book. The town that Mayor O'Brien and his successors tried to govern was more like a giant fraternity house than a real community. Three quarters of the 805 residents recorded in the 1850 census were male. Nine tenths of all Portlanders in their 20s were men, attracted by jobs in road and building construction. Well, that's not true. That, that's where it breaks down. Actual employment doing a thing. When young Elizabeth Miller and four other school teachers from New England passed through the town in 1851 on the way to new posts in Oregon City, Miller reported that the one-sided community was exceedingly interested. She speculated that the entire population must have crowded the wharf for a look. Another woman commented tersely that Portland was, quote, rather gamey. I know it smelled crazy in there. For something to smell bad back then, ooh, <laughs> it had to be really bad. Uh, would you believe it though, just like uh, just nearly almost a century later in the early 20th century, uh, the Portland Ku Klux Klan, there's <laughs> so quite a lot of them out here in the Pacific Northwest, wouldn't you know it, um, faced a similar problem. Uh, there's a famous, the, famous the, the number one Klan leader from... <laughs> Oregon history was a man named Reuben Sawyer. And I'm just going to read again from this history book. As he had an Anglo-Israelism, I will explain that in a second, <laughs> Sawyer combined the lecture platform with organizing activities. The Oregon clan leader, Fred Gifford, was anxious to make a place for women in the all-male organization. So it's like, you know, sort of similar. How do we get some dames to be involved in the Ku Klux Klan? And the answer was... In the summer of 1922, they founded a women's auxiliary, Ladies of the Invisible Empire, known as Lotties. He placed, uh, uh, Gifford placed Reuben Sawyer at its head. Sawyer ran Lotties and wrote its rituals until sometime in 1923 or 1924. I know, I know, I know Sawyer was running Lotties like at the damn Navy. <laughs> when he had a falling out with Gifford, possibly over division of the organization's substantial revenues. In any case, in 1924, Lotties was dissolved, replaced by a new women's organization headed by Gifford's wife, and Sawyer disappeared from clan affairs. So, perennial problem here in the Pacific Northwest, 
how do, and for podcasts, how do we get women interested in podcasting and white supremacy? Or which some people would argue are sort of similar things. Did, did people try like getting them back together like the Ramones? <laughs> They're like, you know, I know you guys fell out, but you like, you created a great clan together. I like the idea that uh, it's, it's basically like an anime con. It's like, we got, these uni- we got these cool costumes, but like the chicks aren't into it. What do we do? Well, I mean, that is like an age-old problem. Uh, is like, how do you get women involved in your like ethno-nationalist thing? And like, it, Israel solved it, you know? Uh, by, you know, by being like, look, we have the golden hour over here. <laughs> You can, you can be in the army. You can be in the army and uh, like f- fuck a bunch of 13-year-olds that look like Jerry Ferrara. <laughs> so they support Israel when they're adults. And they work at Wachtell Lipton. Um, and, you know, the, the modern like reactionary movements, they haven't really solved it. It's tough. It's tough because it's like, you know, you, you, you get the guys together to bitch about women and then it's like, all right, you know who's like women... But, you know, skin color-wise, other races. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of which, uh, I made reference to Anglo-Israelism. And uh, Ruben Sawyer also sort of... Uh, I don't know if you listened to a, a recent show where we were talking about Andrew Yang's forward party and one of Felix's forward-thinking ideas it was creating who are the new Jews, who are the real Jews, how do you figure that out? Yeah. Well, Ruben Sawyer had an idea uh, in, the early, in the 20s. And I'm just reading here, it says... In his first Klan address in Portland, he spoke about the Jewish question. He began by distinguishing those Jews who are of the true lineage and faith of their father Judah from objectionable Jews, (laughs) persons who have usurped an ancient and honorable title. These objectionable Jews are not of the same mental and spiritual caliber as their erstwhile co-religionists. Not objectionable Jews rarely make the flight logs. Uh, Sawyer even has speculated that true Jews would be qualified to join the clan if only Christian rituals were not there to inadvertently offend them. So just, just, just cut out the Christmas tree, <laughs> Easter, things like, you know, so we're going to open it up to the, the true Jews if we only get rid of Christmas. Uh, it says here, uh, Sawyer also addressed the issue of a Jewish conspiracy, or as he put it, a government within our government. So... <laughs> Big problem for the Klan, not enough women, not enough Jews involved in it. And uh, for the last bit of uh, Portland history, I'm jumping ahead to the modern era. Now, let me ask you guys, do we have any 90s kids in the house? All right. And how many of y'all remember the classic educational video game, Oregon Trail? So, here's a question. What happened to Oregon Trail? Like, how did it go from being a delightful history-based educational computer game that nearly every school kid in America played to basically just disappearing? That and where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, you know, uh, the math munchers. (laughs) Mavis Beacon teaches typing. Carmen Carmen Sandiego trained a generation of mentally ill men to find women from Twitter by their apartments (laughs) reflecting in their eyeballs and selfies. It taught them that that's okay to do. 
This is only uh, tangentially related to uh, Portland and Oregon, but you know, Oregon Trail is, that's, that's how I learned about this state. So the, the, the answer to the question, what happened to the delightful children's computer game, the wholesome educational content, Oregon Trail, what happened to it? The answer is a favorite of us on this show our favorite pastime to do in hotel rooms when we're on tour. That's right, Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary of the show Shark Tank happened to Oregon Trail. I'm just gonna read here, it says, eventually this sort of profits over product mindset infected the learning company itself in the form of O'Leary, whose company SoftKey Software Products Incorporated acquired the learning company in 1995 for $606 million. I just like, this is, this is really how, uh, you know, like the acceleration of capitalism. Uh, a, a wholesome firm called The Learning Company is bought out by a company called Soft Key Software Products Incorporated. <laughs> Fuck your learning. <laughs> Pay me my money. SoftKey's business model involved taking existing software and repackaging it for the shelves of big box retailers like Walmart, rather than more niche computer-specific retailers. With a less computer-savvy customer base, these retailers were less interested in the quality of the games and more concerned with low prices and flashy packaging. The end result was that O'Leary spent a lot of resources making sure the learning company's games had Scooby-Doo on the box. <laughs> Well, do, do, do you think that he, like, he played Oregon Trail and he got to the part where, like, one of the members of your party can die in a boating expedition? <laughs> and he was like, oh, what the fuck? I gotta say, like, I can't get on my high horse about this because I, of course, played Oregon Trail. I'm, you know, right there, the Oregon Trail generation. And all I gave a shit about was shooting the buffalo. <laughs> yes. I didn't give a fuck about anything else. Oh, you gotta buy hardtack. Fuck you. I'm buying bullets. Oh, you gotta worry about. Oh, well, you gotta cock the wagon. Fuck you. I'm buying bullets so that I can murder. And you shoot four buffalo, and they're like, you can't take any more meat. Fuck you. I want to shoot as many goddamn fucking buffalo as I can. Well, that's very educational because indeed that's what the people that who settled what we did. <laughs> did the West did just in this get country. Out, get out the fucking caboose of a train and just shoot them from the, from sitting there. A drive-by on the single yeah. largest biomass on the planet. Get the chopper. So yeah, no, it's like uh, they replaced the wholesome educational product of Oregon Trail with uh, Scooby-Doo dies of dysentery. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if Scrappy-Doo they... found dead in Miami. <laughs> they should have turned it into like just a doom level. <laughs> where you're just like wasting buffalo and squirrels. Remember the squirrels? The squirrels were the hardest ones to shoot because they were small. <laughs> And then there was the deer that were right in between. Well, no the humans. That was the real problem with Oregon Trail. It's like, look, we're, boot we're beating around the bush here. Let me kill a person. <laughs> they, like, this is, we're talking about the settling of America, right? <laughs> like, killing people was, like, very key to that happening. Well, they, they could have done, like, a historically accurate thing with Scooby-Doo, where they, like, you know... They, they, <laughs> all right. Look, I mean, off of what you told me, you know, move it up a little bit to the, you know, 1800s, and they, they capture the rabbi, and they pull his, his, his mask off, and it's like, oh, it was a regular white person. <laughs> oh, okay. I would have got away with it if it wasn't for you meddling lotties. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, basically, uh, Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, did what he does to basically like, you know, every capitalist does to anything they buy. 
he just came, quote, he just came in, bought a bunch of companies, scaled them back, and laid off all of the good people. So that is what happened to Oregon Trail. It's the show Shark Tank happened. Matt, would you buy Oregon Trail if you were on Shark Tank? What if, if I was pitching you a game where you have to ford a river? Would you? Uh... I would say I will. I will do it. I will. I will. I will fund this if we turn it into a immersive VR simulator where I get to strangle woodland creatures with my bare hands. <laughs> So that does it after our tour through. I uh, hope, hope you enjoyed that very edifying tour through Portland history. I mean, there was other accounts of the, the first British person who discovered it. By discovered it, I mean claimed for England. He just was like, this place sucks, and then got on a boat and planted a flag and then went back to England. Even pirates found the Pacific Northwest a bit dreary. But we're here now. I think it's a great You guys place. know about the coin toss, right? About how there was... a. They, they were deciding, are we going to name it after... There were two cities in the east that they were going to name it after. Portland or Boston. And they just flipped a coin. And then it came up Portland. Imagine if you, you guys... You guys dodged a fucking bullet, really I'll did. tell you that. Just Holy shit. Imagine, imagine if this was Boston, Oregon. <laughs> just soak in that for a minute, what that would mean for you people. Let's, 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 let's move on now from ancient history to the present day. And the first, news, the first news item of this week that I'd like to discuss in tonight's show is, of course, Nancy Pelosi starting World War III. <laughs> with her trip to China. And by China, I mean Taiwan. Ben Garrison still got it, folks. Uh, well, okay, like, oh, so, so she's, she's going to Taiwan, and I'm like, and by the way, uh, the, the Biden administration told her not to do this. I mean, they say that in public, but okay. who knows what they were saying in private, like, oh, no, don't go to Taiwan, Nancy. Because, like, I can imagine if I'm Brandon and I'm like, oh, I'm either going to die or lose re-election, having everyone be killed in a nuclear holocaust, including me, is a preferable alternative to that. Because I mean, like, then I don't have to worry about anybody being around and making fun of me afterwards. Well, that, that would be like a good, like, weepy Irish bullshit thing to go out on, right? Like, oh, I finally became president. I, like, my son had to die. I'm senile. Everyone saw my other son's cock and asshole after. <laughs> like, we tried to make it illegal to post it, but then you were just able to do it. And then I, I was the president when the world, like, nuked itself 50 times over. And Ireland literally was wiped off the map. <laughs> well, I mean, in retaliation, it's a trend from today's New York Times, at least 11 Chinese missiles struck seas north, south, and east of Taiwan on Thursday, less than 24 hours after Speaker Nancy Pelosi celebrated the island as a bulwark of democracy next to an autocratic China. The People's Liberation Army declared its missiles all precisely hit their targets, even as Japan said five landed in its waters. Well, maybe that's what I, Well, who's to say they missed? But I, I was like, did, did, did Paul Pelosi go on this trip? That's what I want to know. Because, like, before Congress opens an investigation into, like, the analyzing stock sales, so stock, you know, uh, uh, buys and sales uh, by members of Congress's family, I was like, so someone made this up, but I'm thinking it's, like, Pelosi and Paul on the plane... And then it's like the People's Liberation Air Force is closing in and Nancy goes to Paul like Bane. She's got the Bane mask on. No, Paul, 
They, they expect to find one of us in the wreckage. No, I don't think he went. I think he was, he's tooling around the highways and byways of California. He's got the blue shell. <laughs> he's, uh, he, he's dropping banana peels behind him. He's shooting turtle shells at the cars that won't move. Well, yeah, that's what, like, the Napa Sheriff's Department should do. Is be like, okay, um, like, we're either going to execute you or you can go on, like, a one-man dirty dozen mission <laughs> to drunk drive all over Shanghai. <laughs> we're going we're to a, 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 give you a fifth of vodka, and then we're going to get you behind the wheel right when, like, President Xi is, like, leaving an event. <laughs> yeah. And just, like, cross our fingers that you just fucking paste him. Well, yeah, he, can be like, he can be like a force multiplier. He's like when special forces guys go into countries and teach guys how to be soldiers. He'll teach, like, the Chinese freedom fighters how to drunk drive. And he'll have, like, he'll have Gladio weapons caches of white claws and, <laughs> and cars with massive blind spots hidden in forests. We got plenty of those. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm just like... Uh... I just actually got here from Idaho, and yeah, we got some Idahoans, Idahoans in the house. Let's go. Uh, Idahos, Idahos, I don't, okay. Don't correct me, okay? I'm, I have the microphone. Okay, all right. I was gonna pay the state a compliment, but now I won't. No, I'm, glad, I'm just like, I'm glad I was in Idaho when <laughs> this story was really kicking off, because I was thinking like, do I want to be in the middle of New York City right now? Maybe, probably not. All right, let's move on to our next story. This was, a, this was a big story this week. It just concluded today. I'm talking, of course, about Alex Jones's ace attorneys. <laughs> Phoenix Wright. Uh, th- this, this trial just concluded today. Uh, Alex Jones was ordered to pay $4.1 million to the uh, Sandy Hook parents. I mean, apparently he makes that about every week, so... But uh, to be honest, we all saw the, uh, the hilarious footage from the trial yesterday where he, <laughs> he was told um, under cross-examination that his own lawyers managed to accidentally send the prosecution all of his text messages and emails. So, he, so at, one point, at one point, like during these trials, he had, like, he had this attorney who was like a normal evil attorney who was good at like hiding shit and hiding money. And then he just, like, he abruptly fired him and went through, like, five more attorneys before arriving at this guy. And this guy, the key to this guy is that he was a former, like, assistant U.S. attorney, which is why he thinks that the judge works for him. (laughs) And that he, like, that he just, like, he doesn't, like, none of the evidence counts. Well, I mean, okay, like, there's a number of ways you can, you can look at this story. Because, like, the, even funnier than the fact that they accidentally sent, like, all the stuff that they didn't comply with in discovery to the prosecution, the prosecutors followed up and they were like, is this privileged? And they were like, either didn't respond or were just like, no, nah, it's fine. I, I didn't open the attachment, don't know what it is, but yeah, it's probably okay. So yeah, it says here, uh, the messages were apparently sent in error to the family's lawyers by Mr. Jones's legal team. Mr. Jones, did you know that 10 days ago your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years? I would love to see like an audit like, or just like an infographic of the most commonly used emojis in Alex Jones's text trove. 
Uh, the text messages were significant because Mr. Jones had claimed for years that he had searched his phone for texts about Sandy Hook cases and found none. You know what perjury is, right? Mr. Bankston asked Mr. Jones, who indicated that he did. The disclosure of the text provided a striking capstone to the final day of testimony in a trial to determine how much Mr. Jones must pay the parents of a child who died in the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newton, Newtown, Connecticut, for broadcasting conspiracy theories that the shooting was a hoax and the families were actors. The jury began deliberating late Wednesday. So there's a number of ways you can look at this. And is it possible? I'm just like, you know, I'm just, I'm just, just speaking here, you know, but is it possible that the deep state, in an effort to entrap Alex Jones, honeypotted him into hiring my cousin Vinny? <laughs> or did Jones's attorneys accidentally send this, uh, the, the, the information that was, you know, they were compelled to do through discovery, did they accidentally send that to the prosecution just because they didn't want to lose their law license when it came out that they were helping this ham-faced moron lie his ass off in court? Or another way to look at it, a stunning assault on free speech and a presage of things to come. Because, you know, I mean, what is free speech? Free speech is, you know, lying, right? <laughs> Perjury is a form of free speech, and I think it should be protected. Th well, those have been my favorite posts, because, like, for the most part, the right-wing internet is just, you know, they're, they're, like, not touching this. Like, he just looks, it looks too bad. But, like, I've seen a few ambitious soldiers go out there and go... This is exactly what it was like when Stalin went after people. <laughs> there were kangaroo civil trials where Stalin tricked his opponents into hiring bad lawyers. Or like, or, or, or is this a sort of like 12-dimensional chess move by Alex Jones, Wiley Coyote that he is, to then claim and then appeal on the grounds of appeal for like a mistrial or appeal for uh, like a, a, a retrial based on the idea that he didn't have competent legal representation. Now, speaking to someone who uh, was sued for $100 million in a libel case, <laughs> I'm not a legal expert. I didn't go to law school, but I don't think you can claim that you had incompetent lawyers because they accidentally complied with discovery. <laughs> like, what, what's the argument here? That... I was incompetently represented because my lawyers refused to break the law for yeah. me. Yeah, that's, a, that's your, you're supposed to do whatever your client wants you to do, including, yeah, go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, 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 you also, like, you forfeit a lot of things when, like, it's in default, which, like, that's what happened because he just didn't show up to the other case. <laughs> so, like, all around a pretty good strategy. <laughs> Um, I, I think he was claiming that he wanted to pay the families like one dollar, the family one dollar or eight dollars, I think. But then, um, like a lot of stuff that came out in this this trial was really funny because there was the comment that Alex Jones made that referred to the jurors on his case as blue collar people who didn't know what planet they were on. And I think that really just gets to the heart of like the grift, the the, the pure the pure grift here with Alex Jones is that you know. Spoken to, speaking to like, you know, like the normal people, but then when those normal people are on a jury, they're like, these guys, they're, they're goblins, they're stupid, they don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> but also, there was, there was also emails that came out in the, in, in the trial about how, where he was literally saying like, gross food equals money. <laughs> about his like prepper buckets that he sell, it was apparently making a hundred grand a week selling. 
A day. A hundred grand a day. It was a hundred grand a day on survival buckets, yeah. Because the margins on those things are insane because like, it's stuff you could just go and get at a grocery store for like a pat. Like you get a pallet of rice for like $5 and they would sell it to you in a bucket for like, you know, $50. It's amazing. And then there was also a moment where under cross-examination, he started, it appeared to like he started to pitch the jury on his brain medicine. <laughs> and he was like, this is incredible stuff. We get it from Japan. This is, you know, uh, it's a top of the line market for nootropics. So he, he um, one of my favorite moments is he didn't prepare enough to come to court in a fake neck brace. <laughs> but he had the... He had the next best thing, which was, like, a nervous fake cough that he would do every time, like, his lawyers, like, fucked up in some way. And during, during a recess, he was doing the bullshit cough. And one of, like, you know, one of the, like, poor parents whose kids died uh, went up to him and, like, gave him a bottle of water and, like, tried to talk to him. And it ended with Alex Jones going, like, you're autistic. <laughs> you're neurodivergent. You need the puzzle piece on your car. <laughs> I just think that yeah, it's like, yeah, sure. Uh, anti-establishment, I agree. You know, g- uh, get people questioning the official narratives. Absolutely, they're all full of shit. But like, as soon as it's, that is connected to, please buy these sawdust pills, <laughs> these, this literal snake oil, then it's like, well, maybe, I don't know, like, do you really want to end the rule of the goblins? Because then how the hell are you going to make a hundred grand a day selling fucking bullshit to people? Yeah. Like, do you really... Oh, yeah, you're going to live in a cooperative farm? That's your dream instead of living in a giant, disgusting McMansion where you're just shoving raw meat in your face all day because some fucking rubes bought your bullshit fucking patent medicines? There, there's no difference between what Alex Jones, wa- Jones wants, like in his personal life or his family, and like what Jamie Dimon wants, or like the real guy that Ari Gold is based on. <laughs> there's no difference. There's no like it's if Alex Jones's son wasn't like following his path of yelling, um, you know, he'd be like getting recommendations from his like Montessori school yarn ball coach to go to Tufts or some shit. It's like, yeah, no, no guy who has like hundreds of millions of dollars wants any fundamental change. Yeah, the, the, other, <clears throat> the other funny bit from the trial that I noticed, it was like a, it was like a like court reporter, like a journalist in the court, and they were describing um, like a, an interaction between Alex Jones and the judge where like a, out of context, they, like the, their, their tweet was like, uh, the judge has just said to Alex Jones, Mr. Jones, I don't want to see the inside of your mouth again. <laughs> and there's a person replying going, this shows clear bias on behalf of the judge. <laughs> to, to, treat, to treat him like that, it shows a clear, a clear bias telling him to shut his mouth, that he can't even open a mouth to defend himself. And then like, the journalist <laughs> replied and said, no, this was literal. Alex Jones was trying to show her his molar. <laughs> As an excuse for why he was chewing gum in court, he said he had some sort of, like, mouth pain that he needed to chew gum for. And he was like, I'll, I'll just show you right now. And she was like, no, I don't want to see your disgusting maw gaping at me. Easter egg, though. I'm, I'm not kidding. The guy who said that, who said this show's clear bias, is Keith Rainier's lawyer. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keith Rainier's Portuguese lawyer. <laughs> That's how you know he's evil. 
what kind of man would think to get a lawyer from Portugal? <laughs> my, my, my lawyer's pulling up to the courthouse in a galleon. I'm going to jail. <laughs> I'm going uh, to be sentenced to galley service after this. My lawyers build a bunch of paella on the bailiff. <laughs> They're going to seal me in a, in a cask of Madeira after this. <laughs> Is you, your lawyer wearing one of those like billowy sailor shirts, <laughs> playing playing some bullshit mandolin instrument? Decrecio, they gave me twenty to life. <laughs> oh no! I wonder how he thought to do that. This is probably some like bullshit reason where he's like, everyone's telling me to get like just like a Jewish guy or you know some wasp, but like, you know, they took over the world. Like per scale of their country, they, they did punch they above their way. They really did. I, I need a lawyer from a country where they sleep for four hours during the workday. <laughs> yeah, it's a country like the size of fucking Des Moines, and they they had slaves until like 1997. <laughs> they really did have like that, like you know, work smarter, not harder approach. Yeah. Moving on to the, uh, the next news story on our lineup. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, Paul Pelosi and his blue shell. Well, he fired it, and it hit Indiana Representative Jackie Walorski <laughs> and two of her staffers yesterday. So this is from the AP, uh, when the accident was originally reported. It says, Republican U.S. Representative Jackie Walorski was killed Wednesday in a car crash in her northern Indiana district, along with two members of her congressional staff and another person, police said. The crash happened at about 12.30 p.m. when a car crossed the center line on the state highway and collided head-on with the SUV Walorski was riding in. in that, no, that well, was okay, wrong. Yes, no, that was correct. Okay. No, I'm going to go with the update here. Police have changed their description of the crash that killed Indiana Representative Republican U.S. Representative Jackie Walorski, saying Thursday that it was the SUV in which she was the passenger that crossed the state highway's center line and caused the head-on collision. Yeah. It's, it's like, what, what happened? But I, understand, I, I think I know what happened. So, like, w- she's Polish, as we know. <laughs> and, and, and what happened was is that they were trying to change the dome light. And, you know, shit happens. R.I.P. Uh, just, do you, do you, I mean, like, I think that, look, if, I, if I'm a betting man, which I am, and I want to make the safe bet, it's like, yeah, I agree with you. Like, she's, she's some, you know, stupid, fuck, you know, descendant of somebody who charged a German panzer with a horse. <laughs> That's probably how she died, okay? <laughs> she was one of those people who's like, um, oh, oh, uh, I'm decertifying the election because of servers. You know, not a smart person. But, okay, this is literally kind of what happens in the song, There's a Light That Never Goes Out. <laughs> Do you think that she had a crush on the two younger staffers, perhaps? And she was afraid to make a move, and she was like, oh, I should just kill myself. Uh, yeah, like, like, like they're, they're driving, and, like, and, the, and the, the hot young staffer is behind the wheel, and she's in the passenger seat, and she's like saying, well, so what are you guys doing tonight? And they're like, you know, we're going to go home. It's like, oh, you don't want to get a drink? And they're like... Yeah, not really. And there's just like an awful long pause and then she just grabs the wheel. <laughs> I, I, I would rather die than drive the rest of the way in this silence. Yeah, yeah, to like, die in the arms of your staffers would be such a heavenly way to die. 
Yeah, people, people were like, oh, yeah, you think this is funny? Her 27 and 28-year-old staffers were killed. And it's like, I think that's... Like, a 27 and 28-year-old who would, like, work for this piece of shit? A 27 really and 28-year-old child, sir. Yeah. No, those are grown-ass adults. Uh, just a little bit of background here. It says, uh, Walorski, who served on the House Ways and Means Committee, was first elected to represent Indiana's 2nd Congressional District in 2012. She previously served six years in the state's legislature. She has returned home to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please keep her family in your thoughts and prayers, Walorski's Chief of Staff, Tim Cummings, said in a statement. Walorski and her husband were previously Christian missionaries in Romania. Okay, th- okay. This wait bitch is wait, this bitch isn't dead. She's a fucking Dracula. What are you doing? That jar has already been open. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go spread Islam in Kuwait. <laughs> Fucking Wait, that, dumb family. Well, okay, it's, it's not just about spreading, you know, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They established a foundation that provided food and medicine, food and medical supplies to impoverished children. She's, I think she was supplying blood to Castle Dracula. <laughs> She, she, was implying, she was supplying impoverished children, i.e. medical supplies, to Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> she worked as a television news reporter in South Bend before turning to politics. She was also uh, well-known for her pro-life advocacy. So, owned. <laughs> Honestly, it's like, oh, oh. You're, you're pro-life? Well, why are you dead? <laughs> She's a little hypocritical. You can, you can tell that this person was just, like, a fucking non-entity. Just, like, nothing. Just, just a, a hum of white noise near the coffee maker. Because all the comments that I've seen from other reps after her death are, like, she was just so, like, happy. Like, <laughs> they can't think of anything. No yeah. stories, well, no <laughs> anecdotes, nothing. The, 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 the honorable representative from Indiana crossed the rainbow bridge today. <laughs> They t- they fucking they talked about her like she was one of those fucking overfed Labradors that leaves a patch of grease on every couch they sit on, then finally dies when it's thirteen. <laughs> she was always so happy to see yeah. you. Yeah, uh, her tail was like really strong, I guess. Yeah, she she finally figured out a way to get to the top of the shelf and got that dark chocolate. All right, <laughs> she could yeah. chase a ball for hours. <laughs> Just like one of those people with like zero qualities, like, and the like only aspect to her personality is like, yeah, she wanted to force women to die giving birth, and like, yeah, spread Christianity in Romania. Those are like, everything else is just like just nothing, just blank. Romania. Like, oh, if you yeah. do, if you talk to her, you hurt you hear the sound of when you put uh, AirPods in, but your phone isn't in. <laughs> Just said, like, non-existent... Which is why... And that is why they did not give her the, like, elite lizard people uh, shield that all of, like, the top ghouls have. You're, like, nobody in, like, the Senate or in a high position in the house is going to die in a car crash. If they went across the median, the other car would just, like, explode 20 yards <laughs> away from them. And, like, and they wouldn't even... Nobody would even see it. It would be, like, cloaked, like a fucking Klingon bird of prey. They wouldn't even know what happened. We were talking about this backstage, and it's like, yeah, like, if you're Paul Pelosi or any member of the U.S. Senate, you, like, you have, like, the shields that they have in Dune, where, like, you can get in a car accident at, like, 15 miles an hour, 
but the slow bend, the, the slow fender penetrates the shield. But yeah, and you, and you, like you slam into a concrete divider at ninety miles an it's hour. Just it just gonna bounce it, off. It just bounces fine. off it like a fucking. You're nerf. just annihilating everybody in your path, and no one will know what happened. That's how Aubrey McClendon died. Is he, really? he was like, he wanted to see if he was still in the NWO. And he found out. Yeah. It's so like, he, no, they rescinded <laughs> that shit. Well, uh, this is actually a good, good pairing with this story. Is, uh, when pro-life leader dies, one state comes through. What's the matter with Kansas? Not much recently. Kansas voters turned out in droves to reject the first anti-abortion ballot measure in the post-Roe v. Wade era and dealt a major warning sign to Republicans hoping the drastic curtailing of abortion rights nationwide won't dent their prospects in 2022 midterm elections. Amendment 2 was pushed by anti-abortion activists and would have eliminated the right to abortion and government funding for abortion under the Kansas Constitution. With over 900,000 votes counted as of 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time Wednesday, no was trouncing yes by 50 59 to 41 percent, a gaping 18 point margin. I mean, more than anything, though, this really reminds you like, damn, those Democrats are really good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, to take those, to take those like fundamentals, those underlying realities of like where people actually are on major issues and just like absolutely shitting the bed and being unelectable in two thirds of the country, it's like, yeah, damn, that takes real hustle. Yeah. Respect. Like, look at, like, the congressional delegation for Kansas. It's, it's like, oh, um, Nathan Bedford Forrest, too. That's the first district. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's like, it's like the grandchildren of, like, Operation Paperclip people. Yeah. <laughs> there's, like, there's, like, a guy who, like, participated in Unit 731 yeah. somehow. 165-year-old Japanese surgeon. <laughs> like, sewed people together. Like, oh, General Ishikawa from Kansas's uh, beautiful 5th District. Uh, this is from another article. Say, to say that the movement to ban abortions in Kansas has been fueled by the Catholic Church is no overstatement. The Sunflower State Journal noted several main funders. The Archdiocese of Kansas in Kansas City gave approximately $2.5 million to the campaign this year. Last year, it contributed close to 500000 The Catholic Diocese of Wichita contributed 550000 this year, and the Kansas Catholic Conference added another 275000 of the Pope, the real Pope. Oh, the guy from Kansas who, who just died. In Kansas, yeah. he died like a day before the election. I don't think that that's a coincidence. <laughs> oh, yeah, his, his force field ran out. <laughs> yep. That sucks. Uh, but, like, I mean, I guess, like, just thinking about this and just, like, the, 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 this fucking ballot measure lost by 20 points, which is insane. Like, is there any election in anywhere, even in, like, blue, deeply yeah. blue and red states, that is the margins are that wide? Yeah. To win by over... wide. T- so, yeah, to win by over 10 points in anything yeah. is, like, a f- considered an unheralded landslide. And it just makes you wonder, like... What if you could just like? What if we could just vote directly for the things we want, rather than this like middlemen of these awful Democratic Party politicians? It's like we have like it's like a, a national referendum to like should we have Medicare for all or not? Get these fucking losers out of the way, Jesus Christ! But I gotta say, I, I mean, aside from the part about like, I mean, it's shocking to me that Catholic Church spent all those millions of dollars not on social services for women who are pregnant or building, you know, silly Look, if they didn't spend that money, it was on the the ballot measure, it was going to have to go towards victims of abuse. (laughs) And, like, 
That's, that's just like throwing it down the toilet. But um, there's been some uh, excellent, what, what the kids these days call cope from the uh, anti-abortion people in this country, including one of my favorites, uh, a guy we saw speak at uh, CPAC years ago, Matt Schlapp. Matt Schlapp. Matt Schlapp. The sound of balls hitting an ass. <laughs> Matt uh, Schlapp. Matt Schlapp's take on this was basically that the ballot was worded in such a confusing manner that his mouth-breathing pro-life voters were too fucking confused by it. And they were like, uh, do we support abortion? No. It's like the box with no on the amendment. <laughs> they don't know no matter. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's one that's like one of these uh, annoying, like, you know, theology people. I just like, I just want to quote, this quote from him, his reaction to this. He says, seeing surprise and even anger from fellow pro-lifers about the result from Kansas last night. On the one hand, this reaction makes good sense. Kansans are very pro-life, and in order for their views to be reflected in the law, the referendum had to pass. It failed 5941. Now Kansas will become a bastion of abortion extremism, including welcoming abortion tourism from other states. Here's the kicker. Abortion tourism, please. Uh, have your abortion within a sightline of the world's largest ball of twine. <laughs> uh, here, here's the kicker, though. He says, uh, including welcoming abortion tourism from other states. Virtually no resident wants that. Yeah, not like... Can, can you see a problem with what... I'm, I'm, he's proposing here. Virtually no Kansas resident wants abortion to be legal in its state, except for like the 59 to 41% margin that just voted to do exactly that. I mean, like, these, I, I don't know, like, it's just so fucked up. Like, the, the, the amount of power that these, like, people have gives them this, like, I think they're running into the, the like, reality that, like, the illusion they live in where, like, their beliefs are actually broadly popular and not completely vice versa and is only being sort of like propped up by our awful government and constitutional system which gives them a geographically like outsized uh, representation in government and the awful Supreme Court. But it's like, I mean, people like this, this should be like, this should be fucking evidence for Democrats that like, no, like the only issue they should be running on in the midterms is abortion. I know everyone says in polls that like inflation and jobs are the number one thing. And like, you know, I'm not saying they're not important or not, but like, this is a fucking winning issue if they had the balls to like really stand up for what they should believe in and the people they should be fucking protecting. He just says, yeah. Furthermore, didn't Louisiana just pass a similar measure, 61% to 38%? This all seems strange. <laughs> Does it? It seems strange to you? I mean, surely they're, like, they're not unaware of the polling on this issue, or they just tell themselves, we're like, well, if I ask the poll in another, if I ask, like, yeah, like, do you think, do you, do you think that a baby should be, like, tossed into a trash compactor as soon as it's born? People will, yeah, majorities of Americans will say no to that. But when it really, and like, by the way, that Louisiana state measure uh, passed before Roe v. Wade was overturned. So I think it's just going to be interesting in the coming years and months to just be like, like, people who can countenance voting Republicans or voting for anti-abortion candidates because they are, or call themselves pro-life or anti-abortion, whatever you want to say. I think it's going to be interesting, like, how much of the people who say that or will respond in polls that, like, they agree with it, how deep is their commitment when the thing in the back of their mind that just goes, oh, it's a constitutional right, it'll never go away, is removed. And I think what you're going to find out, especially among a lot of Republican women, is... <laughs> 
they're, they're going to change their tune on this, or at least it's going to become a lot realer for them. Well, the problem is, is that they've spent the last, like, 30 years not really doing anything to, uh, to promote, like, their issues publicly and, like, try to get public support. They've just been in, like, a lab growing, like, weird Catholic mutants to fill the federal judiciary. They've been, they've been like, doing a Boys for Brazil thing to make, like... <laughs> Like the fucking, uh, the albino priest from Da Vinci Code and put him on the Supreme Court. And then they did it. It succeeded. Congratulations. But now you've got like regular people watching these like lidless, like cave salamanders telling you no more abortions for you. You have to fucking die in a hospital and being like, that, that sounds bad. No, thank you. And they have, they have nothing because they put all their eggs in that basket. Yeah, why do, why do they think that they accomplished their goals on this issue in, like, the least elected part of the federal government? Yeah. Like, the least accountable to any elections at all. It, it, I mean, not even that. Like, okay, this issue is so popular that you're saving Brandon. <laughs> you guys are winning on this so much. They're that, like, saving. Brandon gonna is going to be reelected. We're going to get a second Brandon term off of this shit. It really does look like that. Yeah, Brand- yeah, we're going to see Brandon, like, evaporate in the sun because of Dobbs. But it's so, like, no, our side's so fucking popular. Who, the only, like, pro-life celebrity I can think of who isn't, like, a 95-year-old actor is Nick Cannon. <laughs> That's the only guy, they, like, because he made, like, he made a song where it's like, I'm a baby, don't abort me. <laughs> if you abort me, I can't do Wild and Out. It's a, that was it's a catchphrase on dinosaurs from the <laughs> 90s. I'm the baby, don't abort me. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they just, they have like nothing, they have nothing on this issue. And of course, like since so bungler, Democrats have been like, yeah, no, we can totally never talk about this issue in a national context ever again. It's totally fine. Well, they don't have a choice anymore. Let's see what they do with it. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right, this is the last bit of good news tonight. I know it's good that... Uh, uh, women's rights are being protected in Kansas thanks to Democratic will, but there's even better news coming. And that is, according to Bloomberg, podcast guests are paying up to $50,000 to appear on popular shows. First, we miss out on the goddamn PPP loans. We get zero. And now we're literally letting these assholes run their mouths for free. They're like a complete fucking dickhead here. Critics call it payola. And listeners deserve better. No, they don't. That is one thing I absolutely disagree with. If you're listening to podcasts, you deserve what you get. And also if you're making them. People will confess all sorts of things to podcasters, from their unpopular political beliefs or embarrassing romantic mishaps to their worst fears. But there's one revelation certain guests will never disclose, namely that they're paying thousands of dollars to be interviewed on the show. People will confess all sorts of... Oh, sorry. Welcome to the golden era of pay-for-play podcasting, where guests pay handsomely to be interviewed for an entire episode. In exchange, the host gets some revenue, fills out the programming calendar, and might bag a future advertiser. In an age when social media influencers routinely get paid for mentioning a brand in Instagram post or YouTube video, this marriage of convenience shouldn't come as a complete shot. Still, not everyone thinks it's a good idea. 
As someone who's making money for that kind of advertorial content, it should be disclosed, said Craig DeSlack, a New York-based media lawyer. It's just good practice and builds trust with the podcaster. It can't be the Wild West. U.S. regulators also agree that consumers might be misled when they don't know a media mention only occurred in exchange for compensation. So, look, uh, yeah, like, we've never done this on the show. Like, I think, I think we're a little bit more ethical than that. But, like, look. Bummer. I... Need, I I, I'm, I'm going to need to wet my beak just a little yes. bit. So just like, just, you know, advance warning to you guys tonight. Time permitting, we will be doing uh, like a, a meet and greet after the show. Come by, say what's up. But the cost to look me in the eye is $1,000. <laughs> the cost to ask me a question, $5,000. Me retweeting one of your tweets is, that's $10,000. I will, uh, you know, even if time is permitting, I won't be able to do that because I, I've come down with strep throat. But for $125,000, I will give it to you. <laughs> so it's boom times for podcasting. And, you know, like from now on, I'm sick of being a sucker. We're getting loans from the government and we're charging 50 grand yep, to fucking pop yes. to come on our yep. show. All right. That brings us to our mission. Please stay seated. We have a couple surprise guests for you in the second act tonight. Portland, Oregon, Aladdin Theater. Hang tight. We'll be back after an intermission. Get a drink. Love you guys. Portland, let's fucking go. We're going to cruise right into the second act of the show. If you'll just give me a moment here. We are starting out the second act of the show with the reading series that I have sourced for you, ladies and gentlemen, this evening. The reading series is... Investing in real estate as self-care. Many women seeking independence after a breakup or divorce have discovered emotional empowerment and even healing in real estate investment. Portland Aladdin Theater. Before I start this reading series, we thought that this would be a great opportunity. This is a reading series about girl bosses. So we're going to bring out the, our first slate of two guests in this act. Or no, three guests, actually. Our first slate is about girl bossery. Let's bring out two genuine girl bosses. Two-thirds of the Chapo Wags division. It's Catherine Krieger and Amber Rollo. Come on out. Amber, Catherine, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. I believe these are the first uh, women ever on stage for a Chapo show. <laughs> what about uh, like Littlefield show in 2017 when Elizabeth Early was on stage and I fucked her? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like everyone forgot about that. Seems like we've all conveniently memory hold that. Normal world. Yeah. I, I fucked her first. Uh, no, uh, checks, notes, yeah, and then she went to me for a reason. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so, you, you two are the two biggest girl bosses I know. So, have, have either of you invested in real estate recently? Um, well, after this next breakup, once I get through that, um, 
I'm really looking forward to joining that landlord, hashtag landlord life. All right. Yeah. Amber, Catherine, thank you for so Let's get into this reading series. So this is by uh, Jennifer Miller, writing in the New York Times. It begins. Who, who wooed for Jennifer Miller? <laughs> I love, a, I love a woo girl. We're the woo girls in the audience. Woo! Do you ever think about how woo is ow backwards? Wow. Yo. The sad, the sad clown at woo the heart of every woo girl. Yeah. Now it was distinctly like a male's voice. <laughs> a, a man who loves articles. <laughs> we got a real article head in the crowd now. I think, no, it was probably like one of her classmates from her semester at sea. <laughs> the article begins Rochelle DeVoe was t- <laughs> okay not real okay yeah, yeah. made up name avoiding taxes got it yeah. Rochelle DeVoe was two weeks shy of closing on a house with her partner of ten years when their relationship imploded her future suddenly snapped into focus she was 30 and had had a successful career as a marketing strategist. Excuse me. <laughs> woo! Woo! <laughs> we love a she woman marketer. She's been dating this man for 10 years? Yeah, it says, uh, uh, she was with this man for 10 years. And she's 30. She, <laughs> Yo, sus! Sus! You think, Yo! You think that? You think, you, think, you think that's bad? The man is 24. <laughs> ready for that conversation uh, and she tricked this poor boy who she abused into buying a place <laughs> okay so she was 30 and had had a successful career as a marketing strategist but she'd never but she'd never feel truly secure without a permanent roof over her head she took a leap in 2019 and bought an investment property a duplex in Missoula Montana intending to live in one unit and rent the other It was the crappiest house on the block, she said. But it was what she could afford. I made the decision entirely from a financial standpoint, she said. What I didn't realize was how much confidence and pride and empowerment I'd feel. She added, it had so many tangential benefits, that emotional emotional feeling of, I did this, and I did this for me. Gatekeep, girl boss, gentrify. I'm, a, I'm surprised. Like, I thought this would, like, be in New York, but she, was, like, she did this in Missoula. She was, like, uh, renting to a guy who only wears overalls. <laughs> it's like a guy who got killed trying to make his own moonshine. <laughs> How'd she end up there? <laughs> Going on, it says, investing in real estate or becoming a landlord has inherent stress. <laughs> Mm. Mm. You should try dealing with one, (laughs) especially in a volatile market. But many women seeking independence, especially after a breakup or divorce, have discovered emotional empowerment and even healing. They've conquered a steep learning curve, often in the face of skepticism, and they've found a unique support system where excising relationship ghosts is as important as learning to negotiate interest rates. Well, first of all, if you're a landlord, I'd like you to excise the actual ghosts in the property you bought before your relationship demons. I'd like you to excise yourself. Exercise yourself? Ex- excise? I like, I like that they go, like, it's a volatile market, and it's like, yeah, rent is really volatile. 
it's up, and then it's up. <laughs> then it's up, like, not as much. And then it's up more to make up for that year. Uh, the Catherine Amber, you know, I mean, obviously everyone knows uh, the sting of heartbreak and a bad breakup. Uh, like, what, you know, other than buying a duplex in Mozilla, Montana, I mean, is there other, other, other feelings of empowerment and strategies for coping that, that you've encountered? Well, yeah, you know, I'm about to, to get divorced. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, and I, I just, this is a good opportunity for me to announce that I'm, I'm buying up half of the squats in Portland, uh, all in the name of empowerment. And actually, a bunch of you are about to be my, uh, I'm about to be your landlord, so... Uh, <laughs> It's feminist. It's feminist. You can't criticize women landlords. Um, I am personally uh, starting a women's section of the KKK. (laughs) (laughs) We're called um, Hottie Lotties. And we're we're girl bossing white supremacy. (laughs) You're going to need a place to live, though. You're going to need a feeling of security. Catherine's going to be my slumlord. There you go. There you go. Do you get, will like the women's KKK have like new stupid names? Like instead of like the Grand Imperial Wizard. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, no, no. Yeah, we're we're obviously all witches. Grand Imperial. <laughs> okay. Everyone, everyone will have to take a new KKK name that's like Riley, but it's spelled with like three H's. <laughs> you know, it's like picking your Catholic confirmation name, but. Uh... You get assigned. Well, all, all the like cells are determined by uh, your uh, zodiac. <laughs> You have to take a personality. This this is a, a chapter only for NJs. <laughs> no, but for real, a real like girl bossery thing that I would like to see is like girl bosses opening up abortion clinics, <laughs> <laughs> and we could just you know have like cities where you go to for abortion. Like instead of Helen, Georgia, it's like Baby Kill, Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be that'd be a, a property to invest in if you were you know seeking empowerment for you and oh oh you hate all landlords what about landlords at abortion <laughs> clinics uh, not very woke now are we continuing with the article it says here quote you have a group of women who are really looking to develop themselves personally said Becky Nova thirty eight a cancer researcher in New York City who started an organization called Lady Landlords <laughs> in March twenty twenty. We're not crocheting, we're building generational wealth. Whoa. She was a cancer researcher. Whoa. She went in and one day she was like, uh, yeah, I found the cancer, it's me. <laughs> you know she's researching so she can spend, so she can charge like $500 for the cure. <laughs> she, she works at Susan G. Komen. Yeah. She's just like, uh, 90% of all donations go to pink merch. Generational wealth is one of those terms like platform that they should not have let get out of college. <laughs> it escaped the confines of classrooms, and now I have to hear it all the time. I don't know what people think it means. Like they think like they think it's like just like a big bag of money with your face on it. Spoken, oh, this is my family. Like a generationally wealthy person. It's actually a big bag of money with your grandfather's face on it. <laughs> Uh, women comprise nearly one-third of the membership of the National Real Estate Investors Association, but a decade ago, the women were often part of a wife-husband investor teams, said Charles Tassel, the chief operating officer of the association. Today, the 30% holds, but they're not spouses, he said. There are more single individual women coming in, not remnants of a couple. Well, remnants? <laughs> the remnants. <laughs> like a meteor hit Earth? <laughs> 
And the remnants bought a duplex? The leftovers. <laughs> you can find the remnants of my relationship somewhere at the bottom of the North Atlantic. I mean, if you think about it in, like, heterosexual relationships, the woman is kind of already the, the man's landlord of, of love. <laughs> think about that. Thank you. Thank you. Are they all bad? I don't know. I don't know. Communities designed to support female real estate investors have also seen steady growth. Lady landlords and real estate invest her. <laughs> have engaged Facebook followings and loyal podcast audiences. Thanks for all the investor fans here coming out to support us tonight. All right, like we've already established that podcast listeners are demented freaks. (laughs) But if you're listening to a real estate podcast, you should live in a dog kennel. I, I like, I do like watch podcasts like that just because I love bad podcasts. I do Literally. too. You're on one. I do too. Yeah. You best start believing in bad podcast, Felix. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, bad as in like you know the the mom like rode American Eagle while she was pregnant with the host. Not bad as in like just we don't try very hard. But it is, it is. It's just like it's just like positive aphorisms. It's too just like you know cockapoo women who are like. And the thing is, like, if you don't think that you can do it, well, uh, you know, try doing it, and then you'll be able to do it. And then it'll be like the clip they put out there to make you listen to it. I love shit like that. <laughs> like the clip I saw yesterday of uh, a, wo- a, a woman interviewing a medical intuitive who told her that Lyme disease is a gift from outer space that only the most spiritual people <laughs> are afflicted by. <laughs> My podcast is now on Patreon. Please subscribe. Um. So it says here, uh, they they also host local meetups and annual conferences and offer paid mentoring services. Ms. Nova charges $2,400 for a three-month coaching package. An annual mentorship program with real estate Invest Her costs $7,500. Once again, just we're leaving money on the table everywhere. That is such a fucking good skill. Like, I... We should teach a replying class. <laughs> oh, my God. That's kind yeah. of self-serving, though. We'll just yeah. improve your replies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I'm not going to make them better. No, I'm saying the quality of your repliers. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. The po- like, they're going to keep getting... They're going to, like, maybe get, like, 3% better. But the point is, they're still going to suck. And I'll be like, oh, you didn't pay for the super premium. Like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. come back. We've like, exactly. like we're gonna education. have terrible replies no matter what. Do we want yeah. terrible replies and a boat? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, we would. In their language and mission, both groups say that taking care of yourself mentally and emotionally is critical to building a successful business. <laughs> Also, having a shitload of money to start with is also very important to building a successful business and buying property anywhere in America. This is, I mean, like, there could be no woman Howard Hughes. I'm sorry. Boo. Like, I mean, <laughs> it would be... Women be, be, would do be, be loving ha- keeping piss in well, jars. That's the thing, is it would be harder to get collect the piss in the mason jars. Uh, you, you can do it. You can do it. use a wide... Uh, yeah, you wide girls can do anything, Matt. 
a white mason jar? It's fine. I'm sorry, yes. Women can piss into fucking mason jars. I'm an asshole. That's right. That's right. Well, no, I, I think, like, a woman could be, like, just as evil and rapacious as a man. But I think, like, Howard Hughes was special because he was, like, a walking skeleton. <laughs> he was, like, he was, like, a guy you meet in a real haunted house. <laughs> that Danzig sells to you. <laughs> Elizabeth Faircloth, 44, co-founder of... Real- oh, none of these are real names. <laughs> Every one of these names, the person interviewed was like looking at a corkboard behind the interviewer and just like look, just pulling shit out of their ass. Yeah. Not real. These are names that Patrick Bateman introduces himself with. <laughs> Lives with her husband in New Hope, Pennsylvania. In 2004, they began investing in real estate together, but over the next decade, the financial strain of the recession and later becoming a mother left her reeling. I started to lose myself. I'm working with my husband. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Mom's spaghetti started showing up on my sweater. I'm working with my husband and building a business, but trying to figure out my identity as a new mom and married woman, she said. In 2015, she connected with... <laughs> And- Andresa Guidelli. That is a real name. A Brazilian immigrant who lived in Chestnut Hill, Pennsylvania. The woman soon joined forces, flipping dozens of properties and building new construction. By 2017, over chats with Panera Bread, they began talking about creating their own women-led group for female peers. Okay. I... So that name is like... It's sort of like a mis- uh, misdirect, right? Yeah. Because it's pretty normal-sounding. But then you realize it's Brazilian. No. And it's, that's a weird for a Brazilian name. It's, like, her name is supposed to be, like, um, Josueta <laughs> de, de Moller Garanho Jr. Well, it's, Senior. An, it's an Italian-Brazilian name, which, you know, there's a lot of Italians in Brazil. They, yeah. Uh, Ooh, and actually, we get the- Guidelli, it's, like, one of the names that Guido came from. Huh. Yeah. Today I learned. <laughs> So, we're, being, we're being empowered already. It's a real... <laughs> Bo- Bo- Bolsonaro is a famous Italian Brazilian. <laughs> no, he really is. He really is. Yeah, yeah. He really is. I, I just love the idea of, like, I'm, I was caught in an existential quandary. Who was I? What do I mean in this life? And then I just started buying rental property. <laughs> and that fixed all of it. I just have money now, and it doesn't matter who I, I am. Whoever I am, I have a pizza oven in my backyard that I never use. That's all that matters. And I'm yelling at the contractor who fucked up the fucking tiling on my pizza oven, and I go, I go to small claims court to sue his ass for the next three years. And so that's three years where I don't have to wonder who I am. I'm the person <laughs> suing to fix my goddamn fucking pizza oven. I didn't like this one source. I, I don't know if you haven't gotten there yet, but one of these women like is still married, and I I think the investor yeah, I think the invest her that does kick violate her ass the out. entire yeah that's premise. the one that's, that's with the Brazilian lady oh yeah, yeah this, this is yeah, women yeah they're talking about, their own way like she started investing with her husband and at no point do they break up yeah which means she needs this to is get... not a narrative of girl power empowerment leave is, him yes. <laughs> If she wants to be girl power, she has to break up with this asshole. Uh, dump, dump him and raise the rents 10% yeah. without any capital improvement. Dump him, raise the rents 10%, and then marry the Brazilian fraud. Okay. There you then go. Then you will be okay. a 
progressive success story. That is another thing. There is nowhere in this article do they talk about lesbians owning property. Okay? Let's get some represent. Let's hear it for lesbian so landlords. Sorry. Where are the lesbian Woo! landlords? Uh, so it says, uh, but uh, Ms. Faircloth cautioned Ms. Guidelli, who was in the middle of ending her marriage. I remember Liz telling me, I don't think that this is a good time for you. You're going through a divorce, Ms. Guidelli recalled. And I said, That's exact- this is exactly what I need. It turned out that Ms. Faircloth, though happily married, needed it too. I have my own identity, my own place in my life that is mine. It wasn't in the shadows of my husband, she said. Ms. Faircloth and Ms. Guidelli began Invest Her in 2018. We need to do this to- for other women. How do they balance their life and create financial freedom on their own terms? Well, it's very easy. By becoming a landlord, you can balance your life and income by essentially doing nothing for money. And creating no value At the whatsoever. end of every month, people will like, are legally compelled to just give you a huge part of their income for the privilege of living in your shitty investment property. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know who I was. I felt adrift, and then I realized, no, I'm the person who ties the damsel to the railroad tracks. <laughs> I am the person who, I am the one who knocks at the end of the month and says that if you do not give me my rent, I'm going to call the sheriff. I, I just, I like how empty it is because they don't explain, like, in what ways it made them confident or self-actualized. Like, they might as well say that because it's like, um, oh, I, like, I was adrift. My, my husband, my husband, like, was, like, our kids are ugly. Our, <laughs> You know, I'm, 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 I'm bad at book club because I have the numbers dyslexia. <laughs> reading a book, we're reading a book with a lot of math in it. And then I, like, you know, now I broke even on my rental property after three years. And then what? Like, what did you feel? The answer is pizza. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I have a thing on my property that costs a ton of money and pisses me off. And then I get to yell at my tenants to give me money to pay for it. I mean, like, in, in this case, as in so many others, right, it's like self-care and self-actualization are really just synonyms for money, right? Like, <laughs> it true. takes money to do self-care, and it takes money to be self-actualized. It's almost like we live in a society. <laughs> Folks, you heard about this? Capitalism? Not a fan. So what's the economic system that undergirds all human life is sort of based around having yeah. money. I mean, it's... it's or, or, <laughs> no, sorry, go ahead. No, it's just... I was just thinking about, you know, like, capitalism. <laughs> capitalism, yeah. That's pretty fucked up. We, we want we, capitalist her, yeah. right? Well, well, these broads are on the cutting edge of creating capitalism her. And we have to applaud them. Well, okay, wouldn't you say that like self-actualization is for it's for the richest people, obviously, but then like the poorest people. And as always, middle class people don't want to hear from you. Don't care. <laughs> Boring. But like, I, okay, you know those like monks in India that like their goal for the last 70 years of their life is to like turn gray? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, of course, yeah. Yeah, they have yeah, no sure. money. They I have know, no, know the they have nothing. And the point is that they have nothing. So it's like only them and Jeff Bezos get to self-actualize. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's turning gray on his own. I mean, yeah. yeah. Those monks actually own a lot of property. That's, that's not covered in the Wikipedia article. Yeah, they went, they went on their journey because of a final lawsuit with a contractor that they lost. So you could say, the yeah. The non-oven just did not fucking live up to the specs. 
So, I mean, like, you, in, one, in, in one sense, you could say that, yes, living in an economic system called capitalism reduces, like, all human emotion, feeling, and relationships to a sort of monetary transaction. Or you could say, we leverage the knowledge and experience <laughs> of other women in everything from syndication, self-storage, small multis, midterm rentals, you name it, said Mrs. Goodelli. When investors rely on their own experience, they limit their growth. Ms. Faircloth said the organization helps women balance their life and create financial freedom on their own terms. She added, we talk about being on a journey, not the destination. You could be financially free. You could have all the money in the bank. But it's not, I got the duplex. I got the sixplex. Because there will be another thing. It's meaningless if you're not enjoying it. <laughs> well, if it's the journey, not the destination, then you should not need the rent check at the beginning Leverage of the month. Leverage other women. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Always be leveraging. If I like, if I like, gave her like mushrooms and then pointed a gun at her, she would still talk like that. <laughs> she would still talk in like bullshit, like MLM aphorisms. That's just all there is there. I'm gonna skip ahead of the article a little bit. Uh, it says here, uh, Alexia, Alexia Ely, a travel nurse who lives in. Uh, Dothan, Alabama, also began investing after a failed relationship. She said she helped her ex-boyfriend with the transportation business, but she said it was more his dream than hers. I felt like I put everything on hold to push someone else's wagon when I should have been pushing my own, said Ms. Ely, 32. She sold her home and used the money to buy four single-family houses in need of renovations. She lived with her parents while rehabbing them. Today, she primarily rents them to other travel nurses. I felt like I owned myself. Like, that was a form of self-love to go back and redeem my dream, my path, says Ms. Ely. I went from being heartbroken, lost, confused, and in just one year, I was able to turn that into having about half a million in assets. <laughs> <laughs> wait, hold, wait, oh, wait, 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 rewind, rewind. She has four houses, and they're worth half a million? <laughs> <laughs> what a bunch of fucking clunkers. <laughs> Oh, God. Did, that, that 125K a house in 2022? Did she, call, did she call buying up properties self-love? That sounds very masturbatory, which I guess, you know, fits. <laughs> well, if once you have a house, you have a place to masturbate in. <laughs> you don't have to do it on buses in parks anymore, ladies. But she had a house. Had <laughs> it was a house her parents' house. She sold her house and then bought four more. Yeah. It's like I find, um, you know, money just kind of, properties just kind of flow towards me, especially after um, a large inheritance, uh, winning, you know, some other kind of... After my elderly <laughs> husband has his unexpected accident. <laughs> prayers up, prayers up. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, good thing we live in an apartment where there are no staircases. I'll just true. say that right now. Bad OPSEC. Don't tell the people that. <laughs> but, but there are pitfalls often related to gender bias. One 2020 paper from the Yale School of Management found that a si- single women see much lower returns from buying and selling real estate than single men. Yeah. <laughs> Boo. Oh. The lady landlords and real estate invest her message boards are full of questions and complaints about how to address the unequal treatment. I'll get one post that's, hey... What type of flooring should I buy, said Ms. Nova. And one post that's, hey, contractors showed up and asked where my husband was, or I have a male tenant and he's not paying rent. What's the best way to ask for it safely? Well, with the sheriff's department. That's usually like, the way it's done. Going going for you. <laughs> oh, sorry. Ms. DeVoe said she felt a hefty dose of imposter syndrome during the renovation process. Oh, no. <laughs> 
Working with contractors was a nightmare being a woman, she said. On the job site, if her father was around, the men would always address him. And my dad, being this wonderful human being, would be like, I'm not your boss, you have to talk to her. And they'd look confused. They looked like that anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Even the paperwork smacked of sexism, she said. On Ms. DeVoe's property deed, right beside her signature, are three words in all caps, an unmarried woman. I was like, you guys are rubbing it in my face, she said. The state of Montana does not require deeds to list marital status. Okay, I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) Because women face discrimination in the industry, they have to be a little more careful and conscientious about whether someone is preying on them or not. Yeah, you know, as a landlord, you have to be really conscientious about whether someone's preying on you (laughs) or not. In June, she joined about 400 women in Charlotte, North Carolina for her, for InvestHerCon, a two-day conference that real estate investor built as a full-circle transformational experience. Con is right. Yeah. (laughs) There was a nursing and relaxation room. Attendees were encouraged to take mindful breaks where they could network or recharge. Ms. Guidelli said she was so overcome by the sight of women lining up at the microphone that she broke down crying. On the first day, participants were asked to close their eyes and envision themselves five years in the future. Where were they? How did they feel? Despite the dissolution of her marriage, which Ms. Dilger called devastating, she said she realized, I've got this. I'm healthy, I'm comfortable, I feel good. It's a feeling that women in the industry described as accomplishing something significant on their own. Yes, having someone else pay your rent. <laughs> the female dream. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> you're seeing the birth of two real estate companies tonight. <laughs> and finally, Ms. DeVoe is now engaged and she's given the potential division of her assets some thoughts. I've made this my home, this beautiful nurturing place to be, she said. I've told my partner that I'll share our income moving forward, but the duplex is mine. <laughs> oh no, oh somewhere. no, she gets the duplex. Oh. <laughs> Don't, don't take my recumbent bike next. <laughs> <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, that is the New York Times on investing in real estate as self-care. Amber, Catherine, our, our guest girl bosses here tonight, do you have any final thoughts on self-care, self-empowerment, and self-landlording? Uh, rent, rent is due on the first of the month. Uh, <laughs> yes, join my Patreon. <laughs> Catherine Krieger and Amber Rawl, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, now Portland Aladdin Theater, we have another surprise guest for you tonight. You might know him as a writer on TV shows such as The Simpsons and Mission Hill. Mission Hill! But you may also know him as one of Portland's most beloved residents and the premier treats reviewer and in America, ladies and gentlemen, the great Bill Oakley. Thank you. 
lot of fucking copying out there, damn. <laughs> the dick riding is crazy in here yeah, tonight. It really is. And it's coming from me towards Bill Oakley. So, uh, Bill, as, as you know, here we go. As, as, through your YouTubes and food reviews, you are like the, premier, the nation's premier experts on treats. And we decided to ask you tonight to sort of curate for us some of the most wonderful treats that uh, Portland has to offer and sort of do a, a, a live taste test while we uh, sort of interview you about food culture in Portland. Yes, this is a very exciting opportunity for me to show off some of my favorite foods in town. This is completely serious, by the way. There's no, there's no, no humor in this, in this uh, event. Yeah, no laughing. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> the, uh, they asked me to uh, curate a dinner party uh, from stem to stern using our, some of my favorite local places. And so what we're beginning here is with an appetizer from uh, Bluto's. Bluto's, maybe you, many of you have may not heard of Bluto's, it's a fairly new place from Rick Gencarelli who created Lardo, which is one of our most beloved sandwich places. Uh, it, it specializes in Greek fare, uh, Greek inspired fare, and they have uh, incredible hummus, pita, pickles, things like that, which we're having for our appetizer. All right, before I tuck into this, I'm going to start off by asking you, uh, Bill, you, you told me you've been in Portland about 14 years now. What are your favorite and least favorite parts about Portland and the Pacific Northwest region as a whole? Oh, man. It's, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, these are going to be real specific to this crowd, so I don't know how listeners across the country will care. I really like going to the beach on Sovi Island and not just the nude beach, but the other beach, too. <laughs> Um, let's see. I don't like it when it rains all June. Uh, as you know, we happen, that, we happen to have that this year as well. Um, I love the culture. I love the food. I love the food cart pods, especially. Um, and I also love the fact that, it, it, well, at least if you don't have to commute to Beaverton or whatever, it only takes 10 minutes to get from across town. So those are the things I like about it. This is unbelievably good. What are you having, the hummus? Oh, yeah, I'm having the hummus, this cauliflower here, and I'm going to try this pepper right now. Oh, my God, that's so good. <laughs> By the way, if anyone was ever interested in Chapo ASMR, <laughs> I think that... But, um, I think everyone will respectfully look the other way if you need to do your business. <laughs> but, Bill, you mentioned... Um, some of the, the food carts here and you said that there is a Chicago style hot dog cart here and, but you know your favorite part of Portland is, is in the, the imagination of America and the American media sort of the least favorite part of Portland what, what happened when you would share your Portland food uh, recommendations on social media anytime I tweet about any food item from Portland on Twitter at least one person replies there's no food in Portland the whole place burned down <laughs> So, as you, as I'm sure all of you know, with all of you with relatives, in, in certain states, certain regions, areas, certain political persuasions, literally believe that there's nothing here but rubble. Um, and, and uh, you know, that, and, uh, and that comes up every single time. I Still. love that. Just the idea of, like, yeah, like, somebody, George Soros, or whoever, is, like, 
paying Bill Oakley to pretend that there is still <laughs> restaurants that are that in Portland. It's like every month they're like, keep them coming, Bill. Keep, keep making people believe that there are restaurants in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, that, they haven't all been seized by Antifa. That's like like the, that's the only thing America can make besides missiles is like restaurants and bars. <laughs> it's true. Like uh, Felix is sort of like going against the grain with our whole deal here because his entire project has been to reduce the number of restaurants that there are in the United States. There are fucking too many. There are too many. What the fuck? Oh, 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 well, okay. Um, you know, I, my dad was at, like, middle management at General Electric. He made the equivalent of $27 million a year uh, off the strength of graduating from sophomore year of high school. <laughs> Using this, like, inherited wealth from the Dulles ma- Mafia pillaging the earth. I'm opening the first restaurant of its type you've ever seen. We're making a, a southern fried chicken sandwich that has aioli on it. <laughs> oh, 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 this is, this, is really, this is really fucking crazy. We have waffle fries. Oh, we're making some bullshit Westphalian ham sandwich with a pretzel bun. You've never seen that. There are 70,000 restaurants like that in every city in America. Okay, this Greek food was incredible. This was an astonishing very good. first course. That is no, no caparino, the single best hummus I've ever had in my life. No question. Yeah, yeah that was insanely that is good. That's the best hummus I've ever had. Right. Should I clear? Yes. And let's bring on the I'm second... I'm thinking about that goddamn... Goddamn it. What's this place called? It's called Bluto's. It's Fuck! Me. Yeah. Fuck! <laughs> I gotta go back to fucking California and eat regular hummus like an asshole now. <laughs> is you can always make your own um i have done it it is not that good trust me okay it's not as good but it also is a huge pain in the ass and makes a mess that's true costs way more money is not as good and then i have to do dishes for two hours afterwards what's not to love so uh, we, we, haven't, we haven't spoken to you in a while, but like, I, I see the check in with you. My, se- my second question for the second course is, you know, you, you're an authority on, on these subjects. Like every new fast food item that comes out, you review. So I got to say like, to 2022, because like, you know, these rankings, like they, they slide, they move around. What, it, what is right now in 2022, what is in your opinion, the best national fast food chain and the best regional fast food chain? I asked him. This is a tough one. I mean, like, okay, the, you know, Five Guys, that's what I'm going to say, is national. Five Guys. Wow. Now, most people don't consider that fast food, though, so it's kind of on the border of it. But I, that's what that my pick would be if I could only go to one hamburger place. All right, and what is this pizza we're being presented? All right, now, here? this pizza is something special. A lot of people don't, even in Portland, don't know about, this is from Bridge City Pizza. Bridge City is not well known. It's been around here for a long time and it never gets any attention. It was the original and only place in town for years that makes tavern-style pizza. Chicago-style, thin-crust, tavern pizza. Yes! And party cut. There's also another place uh, which uh, is now on hiatus named Jerry's, which makes pizza about 50 feet from here, also in this style, but I think they're, they're closed for a while. Anyway, this pizza 
is delicious. <laughs> I was told that you would like this pizza. So, God damn it! <laughs> Big Fuck. plug for Bridge City. It's making him curse. This just pisses me off. Because I don't live here, so I can't have this anymore. I gotta go home where the pizza is not as good as this. This is also really good. I like a, like a thin crust pizza. I like a pizza that, you know, I'm, you know the New York style pizza, it's, uh, it, if you, it does not support its own weight. It flops over. And like this is like, you know, you can play cards on this pizza. It's great. Tavern style is the actual good Chicago style pizza. Like, uh, yo, 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 we got, oh, we, we got the deep dish, whatever. That's casserole, it's whatever it is. You're talking about actual pizza, the tavern style, the goddamn thin crust and the little squares. It's so goddamn good. It's the best. Okay, so back back to the power rankings here. Five guys, still still the best national burger chain. Yes, in my okay, opinion, yeah. What about a regional creation? Regional chains. I'm going to have to say Burgerville. I know that's... I... I know that's a cheap, a cheap attempt to get applause from this crowd, but honestly, I haven't tried Whataburger, I haven't tried Brahms, I haven't tried those other ones that are contenders. Um, Burgerville, and I did this on the Doughboys podcast early, earlier this year. Shout out Doughboys. They, we had everything on the menu, and everything there is excellent except the burgers, which are still kind of a B-. minus. But the rest of the stuff, the shakes, the specials, the onion rings, everything, and right now the onion rings are in season is top, top notch. Okay, so if I'm, if I'm here in Portland and I'm getting a burger, because I've been thinking about late, late night especially, should I go to Burgerville or should I go to Dick's? For the burger. For the burger. Dick's, Dick's in Seattle. We don't have that here. I saw somebody with a bag of Dick's. Is that not real here? There's no Dick's in, there's no Dick's in Portland. Someone said they saw someone with the Dick's bag. Dick's Sporting Goods. Shit. <laughs> Bill, Bill, have you ever have you ever been to uh, Culver's? No, and that's the one. Okay, that's the gold standard. Apparently, I've never been there. We don't have one. All right, uh, is, yeah. Catherine, who is just out here, she's from Wisconsin. Every time I, I visit her family in Wisconsin, I make her take me to Culver's every day. <laughs> Culver's is my my opinion the best regional burger joint in America. I have heard that many times. I've considered, so many times I've considered driving six and a half hours to Nampa, Idaho, which is where our nearest Culver's is uh, on the spur of the moment to just try it because I keep hearing about it. Uh, one morning, uh, uh, Catherine and I woke up, you know, a little hungover and we were just like, oh, I would love some fast food. Catherine, seriously, Google Maps, what's the closest Culver's to New York City? <laughs> and it was 11 hours away in Ohio. <laughs> Did you go? No. Okay. <laughs> Okay, but the, what is the worst? Yeah, the worst. What's the worst national fast food chain? I think everybody knows that it's Burger King. <laughs> okay, though. Well, wait a minute. Yes, absolutely. Burgers, garbage. But the spicy chicken sandwich is really good. I, I appeared in a commercial for that sandwich, and I agree. Yeah. That, it, it, is, it, it, is the, it is the best sandwich on the menu, tied with the... I still think the Whopper is good. I don't think anything else on the menu is good. <laughs> Burger, King, Burger King, to me, I don't know. There's always been, like... 
it does sort of, I don't think it's like as bad as most people think, but it does seem like the kind of place where like, it's the last place that a spree killer ate at <laughs> before he did his crime. I don't know what it's it is true. about it. It's just like, I associate it with random killings. <laughs> All right, what, what, what is this next course All right, here, now this will be familiar to many people here. This is the pastrami zombie from Sandwich. This is one of the, this place uh, is, probably has many of the best sandwiches I've ever eaten. This, I think, is the apex of, yes, it is, it is fucking awesome. <laughs> that, I will say this one, this is another one that, when, if I post photos of it, gets a lot of question marks from people from New York who think that a sandwich needs to have four pounds of pastrami on it to be a sandwich. Like those deli sandwiches uh, from New York that you can't possibly fit in your mouth. I agree. It's too much much pastrami. I agree. This is excellent. Oh my my god. God. What are the ingredients we're talking here? I I mean, it's mainly pastrami and coleslaw and either Russian dressing or mustard. Uh, and, and that's pretty much it. And then the house smoke it. It's um, it's really something else. God damn it! <laughs> yes. All right. So we're talking about like the. This um, is infuriatingly good. <laughs> yeah, but like, if you lived here, you'd have to like either become a proud boy or, <laughs> or you'd have to be like an illegalist anarchist. <laughs> You know, there are always trade-offs in life. That's the first thing we learn in economics. So as long as we're talking about, like, the, um, the evolution or devolution of the American fast food gym, uh, Bill, do you have any thoughts on the uh, sort of recent debate over the, the transition at some point uh, from McDonald's using beef tallow to fry their fries to the cursed seed oil? And is this part of the kind of devolution of American fast food culture that we've gone from the more satisfying seed oil to the cursed and probably poisonous seed oil? You know, it's interesting. That is a topic that has been a, a, been a mode of contention for amongst fast food aficionados for a long time now. And the beef tallow actually isn't all that much better. I made, it, I made, it, I made the recipe myself, the vintage McDonald's recipe, and other places make it, you know, as their, as their standard french fry, it's maybe like 3% better than regular fries. It's not noticeably different. And it is like, whereas I just had my first batch of potato chips that were fried in beef tallow, those, those were, were amazing. Um, the, potato, the french fries, I couldn't really tell the difference. Yeah, well, like, it's, it's not a real thing. Like, at the end of the day, what, what a place like McDonald's does for an adult who is, like, choosing an option for food is it makes you think of, like, when you were a child. Yeah. So, like, whatever you were eating when you were a kid is going to, like, just hit this, like, like, like you're going, you're going to go into a, f- a fucking Proustian reverie every time you eat these fries. It's like anybody who is, like, under the age of 50, like, you never had the fucking beef tallow fries. That's a made-up thing. That's a fantasy that, that, that is like some trad cath fantasy of America. You, al- you always had the seed oil fries, and what matters is, is that you had them when you were a kid. And that, like, you just being a little child and eating it and then just, like, having pure pleasure fill your brain, and then you spend the rest of your life chasing that. I think with, like, with fast food fries, McDonald's especially, because, you know, like, that's the classic fast food french fry. I think... 
rather than beef tallow or seed oil, like what makes it good or bad, like the chief enemy of McDonald's French fries is it's time. Time. Bingo. Time. Yes, absolutely. And you and like you have about thirty seconds from when you're given them. <laughs> To consuming all of them, of which they are at the absolute. But when you get them right fresh, it's the peak of enjoyment. But 30 seconds after that, they become like wet, cold, just depressing, awful little strings. I completely agree. I mean, honestly, you've got to eat them in the. You can't even do it in the drive-through, really. You've got to eat them in the restaurant yeah. immediately after they're handed to you if you want the primo experience. After two or three minutes, you might as well throw them away. Yeah. And you, that's a, let's say almost every other fast food chain. Fries, though, don't even compare. Like, yeah. They don't even make it out of the drive-thru window. They're, 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 they're not worth even bothering with. So, I guess thank, only, you. thank you. Just like to, to zoom out here, like, like a like broader, like fast food is just kind of a synonym for American culture. Bill, is America burger and is burger America? Or to put it another way... What are your thoughts on the burger as like the quintessential essence of modern American culture? I go, how much time do we have on this podcast? <laughs> About 15 minutes. Okay. I'm not the first one to say this. You aren't the first one to pose this question. There have been books written on this. There's an entire book called The Hamburger by Josh, the late Josh Ozersky, which delves into this, this topic in, in incredible detail within brilliance. That... It lays out the case that it is the ultimate American food, and it is. Um, and I'll just tell you a number of reasons here that, again, will not be funny. Um, that the hamburger at the turn of the, ni- at the in the early 1900s, the hamburger was considered a back alley food. Back, you know, in the Upton Sinclair days of the jungle, meat was considered, you know, suspect. Hamburgers were were. A f- <laughs> I'm good. And all that changed with White Castle. White Castle became the first fast food chain, excruciatingly clean. That was the whole point of the thing. Then, as veterans came back from World War II, it was the uh, opening a hamburger stand, such as the In-N-Out Burger chain, was the ultimate thing for uh, veterans to do who didn't have very much money. And some of those chains have now grown into giant empires. And I think that it is... I mean, I think an argument can be made for fried chicken to some extent, but I think it has other roots. I think the hamburger, especially the cheeseburger, is the ultimate American food, yes. I mean, like, I, I, uh, recently, I guess, just, like, um, in, in online discourse, especially among uh, people who aren't from America... Oh, here we go. Steamed ham society. There we go. <laughs> uh, it's become a sort of a term of derision among people who are not Americans, like, you know, Europeans or... Americans are fat... <laughs> And eat burger. <laughs> yeah, it says, you're an American. American, eat burger. And to these people, it's like, sure, it's, it's kind of funny. But yes, I do. Eat burger. Burger is great. I love burger. I'm an American. Give me more burger. Yes. Everyone has their thing, you know? Like, if you're British, it's like, you know, uh, Britain is fat and fucks kids. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the French French is uh, skinny and uh, signed an open letter uh, saying that there should be no more age of consent. <laughs> Spanish Spanish is surprisingly thin, uh, very strong legs from the amount of walking they do, but um, has three uh, percent employment rate. <laughs> you know, everyone everyone has their thing, and this is our thing. We love the burger, folks, and burger. We love it. What else do we got going on? <laughs> 
right, and finally, for our dessert course, Bill, what do we have here? Okay, what we have here is a dessert from one of Portland's most storied chains, the ice cream shop Salt and Straw. Uh, Salt and Straw has its detractors, but it does a good job in general, and they've expanded into other places uh, all over the country, and, and I believe in Japan as well. They specialize, they have a number of pretty delicious regular flavors, but they also specialize in freak show flavors that they rotate out every so often. Um, what we have here is two different flavors, one of which is my favorite, pear and blue cheese. The other, I, don't, I did not order and I don't know what it is. <laughs> it is uh, strawberry, balsamic, and black pepper. Oh, wow. Okay. okay, and the other one is pear and blue cheese? Yes. I was skeptical about the pear and blue cheese, but fuck, these are, these are also both unbelievably good. Oh my god. The pear and blue cheese was great. I, um, I was a little, it took a couple bites with the uh, strawberry and balsamic, because it's a shock to your system, but, oh yeah, no, they're both this, very good. Which means a lot, because when we were planning this, and, and, and Bill, had, you know, he created the menu, and we all got the stuff, uh, Felix asked, like, is there a dessert course? Because <laughs> he's, got, he's got a little bit of a sweet tooth. And he, he likes it. Even, even both of these exotic flavors. They're very good, though. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect balance of sweet and scary flavors. <laughs> as they say in culinary school. So, Bill, my, my last question for you on, like, on food-related culture is like the, fa- fa- the fast food chain is an institution in American life. And you know McDonald's, the Golden Arches... Our former president Donald Trump and his love of the McDonald's. Fish is, like, <laughs> so, but like, it, it it is something that unites the president of the United States to like the lowliest wretch among us is united by the ease, convenience, and relative predictability and pleasure of fast food. Yes, it is poisonous slop that's probably all killing us, but it is also, in my opinion, one of the going to be one of the few remaining parts of American infrastructure that actually delivers. So, like, how, how do you view, like, the, fa- the fast food chain in, like, a, in the American present and, like, going into the future? Will it still be a crucial fabric of American life? Yes, I think it will be, but it will, it will continue to evolve in ways that it, we, we won't be able to predict yet. Um, there will be different types of fast food chains. There will be different types of things that we indulge in, um, and some of them are going to go by the wayside, I think. Will we ever get a nationwide Italian fast food chain? If anyone's from the Midwest and ever knew anyone's had Fazoli's, you know that, that, the, that it is a, like, it's, it can't be done, but it has never been done at a national scale. Do you well, think we'll wait, ever get one? We have Sparrow. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's just pizza. I'm talking about a place where you can get ravioli, and, and lasagna, and where they bring breadsticks to your table. If anyone, once again, if anyone's been to Fazoli's, I have been. I have been to Fazoli's. I did a review of Fazoli's for just this purpose, and the, the food is really not that good. I mean, it's like <laughs> I, I, it's shocking that somebody could make ravioli in the time it takes to go through a drive-through, and but the quality is the quality is uh, is a concomitant. I think is that, is that the word with what with, with what you'd expect to be made in thirty seconds. Fizzoli's is like the type of place you go to when you're celebrating that your dad didn't get jail time. <laughs> Community service! Yeah. It's for like an ignominious type of celebration. Uh, it's like uh, uh, pulling up the drive-thru window. Um, let me get a, uh, just a medium gnocchi. Can I get a medium 
Gnocchi, please. In, in high school, when we wanted to skip class and like ditch and hang out, we would go to Fasoli's. Uh, yeah, very cool. And Bill, could you explain for anyone who doesn't know what yes. the Steamed Ham Society and Food Discovery Club is? This is very is. exciting, and I know that we have at least a few members in the audience tonight. Uh, the ste- okay, you, many of you know Simpsons Steamed Hams is euphemism. Sketch mm-hmm. I wrote, euphemism steamed for hams. hamburgers. We won't go into detail for that. The Steamed Ham Society is a, is a club, basically, for people interested in food, interested in talking about food, debating, uh, you know, whether Miracle Whip is an abomination or whether it's a, a miracle. I think it's a miracle. Uh, I know, don't boo. Catherine would agree with you. Please don't boo. 100%. Okay, so stuff like that. Also, you know, showing off the amazing chicken sandwich you found on your way to Memphis or anything like that. We debate, we have a Discord, we have a live stream, we have merchandise, and and there's various different levels. Go to steamedhamssociety.com to join. So I, I know that you have very bravely and correctly championed Arby's as a underrated national brand Arby's, shut the fuck up! <laughs> Arby's is good. Horsey sauce is the single best thing. He's gonna talk about the, the year. single best condiment created by a brand. But I'm hoping that at some point you will try the incredibly, oh, like, way better than it needs to be, a Greek Euro. Europe. It's, I'm just gonna say again, please. I've heard for amazing me, things about that. Have the Euro at Arby's. Uh, I've heard amazing things about that. I can't wait to try it. I just want to say this Arby's thing. This was all, it's all because this word, the, the syllable Arb sounds funny. Arb <laughs> is a funny syllable. If, if John Stewart had spent 20 years making fun of Burger King like he should have, we wouldn't be in this boat because everybody thinks that Arby sucks because of John Stewart because the word Arby's is funny. The word Burger King is not. That's where we are. It's and that's, true. That, that, that's They've been hiding that fucking mediocrity behind their, the their monarchy. two names and all that bullshit. The monarchy, yes. <laughs> The, the same reason that people don't make fun of the dying Queen Elizabeth is the reason we won't talk about how terrible a Burger King is. Although, once again, really good chicken sandwich. And the Whopper. Still good. Whopper with cheese. So if people would like to join the Steamed Ham Society, what's, what's the do? You just go to steamedhamssociety.com. Uh, it's a Patreon-operated uh, thing, and there's different levels you can join at if you want more perks, T-shirts, whatever. Also, in some cities, uh, Portland being the main one right now, we have secret menu items at some of your favorite food carts. If you see the Steamed Ham Society logo sticker on there, you know to ask for the secret menu item that only a member can get. That is the most courageous thing you can do is like start an... Start an internet community based on food because it produces the worst replies. <laughs> like, it is, it is just, it's like, for whatever reason, it causes people to behave in the most irritating way possible. When they say their opinions on food, like, I would, I would rather argue about abortion. <laughs> you get, like, less shitty replies somehow. I don't know. But you are, you are doing a service. You are, like, you've... You have you've uh, gone past just like internet community, and you know you're you're creating new secret menu items. That is the most significant thing that anyone has done with an internet community since we lost the primary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. God damn it! Fuck. Okay. And Bill, before we get into our like our, our very last segment for the evening, you also would like to talk about? Uh, could you tell the audience about Space 1969? Yes, this is very exciting. This is uh, uh, Space 1969 is on audible.com. It is an audiobook, but really more of a radio show type thing that I wrote 
uh, five and five and a half hour saga starring Natasha Lyonne, uh, and it takes place. It's a it's a kind of a retro sci-fi comedy. It takes place in a alternate history where JFK did not die from his wounds, but instead. It, Instead, fully recovered. <laughs> I live, bitch. Hey, Alan Dulles, motherfuck you, I lived. It's got all that stuff. It's got, basically what happened is he decided he had a revelation in the coma that he, he suffered in 1963, decided to get out of Vietnam and put all our efforts into expanding into space as quickly as possible. Uh, the story, I won't spoil it any further, Natasha Leone stars as a nurse on the Liberty Bell space station, which orbits the Earth and is, the, and is our jumping off point for our space colonization. It's got a ton of like pop culture stuff. It's like, I was certainly, I've never been allowed to go so nuts with the kind of stuff that I like to write um, without any kind of network interference. So please do check it out. Um, I'm very proud of it. Space 1969, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Bill, for the very, very last thing we're going to do tonight, obviously, everyone, you know, The Simpsons, everyone knows, like, how much it means to the show and, like, you know, for pretty much everyone. And, like, you, you were the author of some of the most classic bits on that show. So it's, a really, it's really an honor to share a stage with you. So if, if you will indulge us, I have prepared, and I'll do very quickly here, we have, uh, we have co- we've come together with uh, some very brief Chapo... <laughs> These are Chapo pitches for Simpson episodes for like season 45 that they're on. I understand you're not working on the show, but just to, 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 to bask in, in, in your glory, to bask in, in, in your sunlight right now, I would just like to share with you and the audience, this is Chapo Trap House's pitches for contemporary Simpsons episodes. And you want my honest feedback on yeah. this? Okay. All right. Okay. A first idea for an episode. Apu returns as a Hindu Vada nationalist... Recruits Homer, recruits Homer and introduces him to Modi, voiced by Modi himself in a guest role. But the voice acting will be swapped from Hank Azaria to Ram Charan, the Chad star of the movie Rise, Roar, Revolt. I'm sad to say I'm not as familiar with some of those uh, references as I should be, um, but, but uh, I think it sounds very promising. Okay. Next up. <laughs> well, if, if, you didn't, if you didn't get that one, this next one's going to be even better. <laughs> After trying to cancel them, Lisa becomes seduced by a downtown Springfield pseudo-fascist art scene funded by Mr. Burns and turns trad. <laughs> Again, I'm only getting a, a percentage of what I think you're going for there. But, but I believe... I, I think that sounds very promising as well. Okay. I really can't wait to see her just vaping like mad. <laughs> okay. Uh, Marjorie Simpson Green, question mark? That's just... No. Uh, Marge becomes a viral... Has a viral Karen moment. Don't run... Wait, this is the... Are you, is this the same story? No, I'm just, I, just, I just have one line that just said Marjorie Simpson Green. I love, that one is definite. That's going in. Okay. That, that's going in. I love that one. It's very promising. It's, it has, as we know, Marge has a little bit of a conservative political leaning. Uh, and I think that it's not wouldn't be that far out of character for her. Well, it'd be a little out of character, but it wouldn't be that. <laughs> you have to earn its way there, but it, it's possible, yes. Illegal immigration makes me madder than a yak in heat. <laughs> I had, um, this isn't in the document, but, like, this is, you know, hit me like lightning. 
Lisa goes out with Drake. (laughs) I think that would be a pretty cool episode. (laughs) No argument there. (laughs) All right, I I really like this idea. Uh, Chief Wiggum touches fentanyl and becomes like Ralph. That's, a, that's another definite one. I think that one's going on the board. <laughs> or like our alternate idea for this episode is that both Chief Wiggum and Ralph touch fentanyl at the same time and have sort of a freaky Friday body switch with one another. Uh, yeah, I mean, you don't waste it all on the first act. That's, that's your second act. <laughs> that's your second act. Third, you know, the third act twist. And finally, our last idea is... Comic book guy, Disco Stew, and Professor Frank meet on a web forum and decide to start a podcast skewering current events and pop culture that becomes shockingly wildly successful, becoming a six-year and ongoing running independent media concern that eventually does a live show in Portland, Oregon with Bill Oakley. God. Ah, fuck. I mean, it's, it's really just that he's, like, wearing the outfit you wore in that one picture. No, yeah, god damn it. I, I, I gotta be comic book guy, right? Fuck. <laughs> Shit! I don't, like, I don't want to be Disco Stew. He's not one of the cooler characters. You know, but you, you gotta... Sometimes you gotta take you it take, on the chin. Okay, so, like, when I, when I did this, like, I, I was thinking of myself as comic book guy. I was You've never that, worn shorts <laughs> in your life, sir. <laughs> You as Professor Frank and Felix as Disco Stew. I'll take I'll take okay. Professor Frank. Okay, well, yeah. All right, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope we did not. Uh, di- thank you for enduring our thank disgrace. Thank you for these amazing treats as well. Thank, thank you for dur- enduring our disgrace of your classic television program. But before I go tonight, I have a uh, just a bit of a PSA for you guys here tonight that was uh, passed on to me by the uh, Portland DSA. If you're in uh, Multnomah County, if you're a Multnomah County voter, <laughs> made up, not a real name. <laughs> if you're a Multnomah County voter, don't I leave. Got Mul- I got stage two. <laughs> Shut Multnomah. the fuck up! I'm trying to get out of here. <laughs> if you are a Multnomah, <laughs> consult a physician. <laughs> if you are a Multnomah County voter, don't leave without signing their petition for the ERA eviction representation for all. Which is a ballot measure that would tax capital gains to provide a free lawyer for people facing eviction. There's a table outside where you can sign a petition sheet. Also, are you looking to get a union job and organize in the labor movement? All right. Come to our socialist job fair on September 4th at 7 p.m. to learn about union jobs in a variety of industries. Talk to Portland DSA table outside to sign up. Join the rank and file movement alongside Teamsters. Preparing for an earth-shattering strike next year. Portland, Oregon, Aladdin Theater. I want to thank our guest, Bill Oakley. I want to thank Catherine Krieger, Amber Rallo, and, of course, our great producer, Chris Wayne. We got to get out of this whole place by 11, but I think at least some of us will try to be out at the merch area saying hey, uh, or by the bar saying hey for, like, 25 minutes, whatever. Portland, good night. We love you guys. Thank you. Cheers. 